I think ultimately the thing is with seller financing is I think people have a hard time with it, especially in the beginning because they don't see the benefit to the seller. All right, welcome to another exclusive interview from realestateaudios.com. This is the Deals Today podcast with your host, Paul, and we're going to be talking with Buddy Broom, an expert out here in Southern California. He's going to be showing you ways to buy property without ever using a bank. And out here in Southern California, it's property that is expensive. It's not your typical $100,000 single family house. These run in the $600,000, $700,000 range, and we're talking about multifamily units here. And he's buying them creatively. He is the creative finance expert out here, one of many out here. But he shows you ways to buy on terms, seller financing, subject to. He teaches all that out here in Southern California. And he's going to be talking about those those ways because he is a buy and hold guy, and he does it all while working a W-2 job. He is still a lawyer, and he does this on the side. He buys property here and there. He's not a volume business guy, but he has accumulated a lot of property and manages that himself. And people are stuck in this notion that, especially out here in Southern California and other places that are expensive, that there is no cash flowing property in Southern California, which is all a hoax. It's all BS. It's only true if you're buying it the traditional way. And Buddy shows you ways to buy it not using the traditional way, and going directly to the seller. So stay tuned for that. And of course, get on my email list at realestateaudios.com where I show you daily marketing tips to real estate investing and free articles and audios on there as well. So go to realestateaudios.com for that. And let's get to the interview. I've been investing since 2010. Or 2000, excuse me, 2000. Our first purchase was 2008. Yeah, first purchase was August of 2008, which is significant because September of 2008 was when Lehman Brothers crashed. So we literally, you know, bought this house. We're like, yeah, we're or this property, and uh, we're doing the right thing. And then all of a sudden, the the floor just fell out from the bottom of real estate. And we saw our exact same property on the market, you know, six months later for 60% of what we purchased it for. So it was sort of a disheartening, disheartening thing. But at the same time, at that time, you know, starting off, and, and I'm a I'm an attorney, I, so I have a day job. I'm an attorney and, and uh, attorney recruiter. So I do, I, I have a day job and this is sort of, we've been buying, you know, these rental properties is sort of our side hustle, if you will. And so at the time I was working for a large firm downtown LA the crash had happened. And at the time, like, you know, I just started, got on like the whole rich net port as if I was inter- interested in it. And, um, we wanted to buy more properties because that, even though our first deal was obviously not very good, I could see, I was like, Oh wow. Like there's deals out there. I could tell. I was like, this is the crash just happened. Everything's on discount. We got to be able to buy. But the problem we had was we didn't have cash to buy enough cash to buy with cash. And we also couldn't get financing. Banks wouldn't lend to us because of our, our first deal. So it was sort of like the the water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. So that first deal, how did, how did that screw up your look with, with banks? We had a property that we bought and all of a sudden we're, we're you know, underwater $200,000. So the banks were like, hey, like your net worth is, you know, your, your net worth is, is negative 200000 and we're not going to lend to you anymore. You know, and banks, I mean, apart from just lending getting super tight after the crash, 
we were definitely not on the on the we'll lend to them list, you know, because of that deal. So at the time we're trying to figure it out. And it just so happened our lending officer told us about a gentleman named Ellis San Jose. He's like, Oh, you should there's this guy, Ellis San Jose. He started this new club called Phoebe for investors by investors. They meet in this little restaurant in El Segundo. You should go check it out. And so now Phoebe's a huge group in in Southern California area, but back then it was literally, you know, nobody. So we go to this restaurant in El Segundo called Stickenstein, which has been boarded up for like 10 years. I mean, nobody, you know, and we get to the group and I'm listening to all the people talk and everybody there was like, I say this with a lot of affection. Everybody there was gritty. Like, you know, there wasn't like a whole lot of flash with the group. Like everybody's walking around, you know, with like flannel shirts and jeans, you know, just, you know, baseball caps. Like it's not like a lot of very polished, like there to impress people was there. And it was people there that were there were like, Hey, I'm here because I'm doing this thing for real. I'm here to share and and get content really and network. And so I appreciate that because I would hear stories of the people. I mean, there was people that were doing mobile home parks and talking about, oh my gosh, I got to put ropes around my pants because the fleas start crawling up my legs and stuff like that. And those are stories. I'm like, oh, that's a great, those are great stories. Like that sort of gave me the indicator that like, oh, this is the real deal. The leader of the group was a gentleman named Ellis San Jose. And Ellis, after the class, uh, we went up to Ellis and we said, hey, Ellis, you know, we hear about how great real estate investing is, but we're obviously not very good at it. You know, we're kind of stuck. Like, what what do we do? You know? And so Ellis agreed to take my wife and I to, uh, to mentor us. And, um, and so we'd, we'd meet with him, you know, once every couple of weeks. And he'd be like, this is the reading assignment. This is what you got to do. We go and do it and we go meet with them, you know, at the also go to public library and just sort of and talk with them. And he'd be like, okay, this is the next step. And then, and then he ultimately got us really emphasized, Hey, like you got to get in front of sellers directly. You got to be in front of sellers directly, you know, trying to get face to face with people. He's like, that's what's where, where the deals are made. And then one week he told us, he's like, listen, there's a gentleman coming to town. These two gentlemen are coming to town to teach a class. He's like, the gentleman's names are, are Gary Johnson and Clyde Wilson. They teach a class called Financial Freedom Principles. And part of your, if you, you want to keep being mentored, you got to go take the class. And so I was like, okay. I was like, yeah, I'll take it. And so we took that in 2009, I believe it was, end of 2009. And um, that class just, it blew my mind. It was the first time I'd ever heard uh, or excuse me, I always hear people talk about, oh, well, you know, I'll buy your price, my terms and stuff like that and create a financing and all stuff. And I was like, I never really got it. I was like, what? Like, doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. But then when I heard, um, when I took that class with Gary and Cloud, I was like, that's it. I get it. Like, I understand what we're hunting for now, what we're looking for. And I understand how it works. I understand the mechanisms. This is like the light bulb went off. So from there, we kept putting out offers. And it was one of those deals, you know, you go into somebody's house and then and we're sending out mail and getting calls and we're going to meeting people. And it was literally like, you know, people would meet us and they'd be like, oh, you know, you guys are cute. They just sort of like pat us on the head and be like, okay, go, go back to recess kids. Like, you know, it's not. <laughs> and, and so you keep doing that. You keep like submitting offers and keep doing the stuff. And it's just like nothing, nothing, nothing. And then finally, um, we closed our first deal it was December 20, 2010. We bought a property for $250,000 over market price. They call us, they called us in sometime in December and they're like, hey, we're going to sell. We got to sell before the new year. 
And so if you want to come out here, it was like December 10th. And like, if you want to buy it, you got to get out here now. And we're like, oh my gosh. So we just like bolted out their place. It took us a couple, probably like 10 hours of meeting with the sellers, chatting, you know, getting stuck, you know, negotiating, going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And um, we finally were able to, to do the deal. And it was, we bought it for $250,000 over market price, which I mean, any of your listeners, anybody who knew this are like, Hey, what a complete idiot. Why would somebody do that? And you know, I'm not saying I'm not an idiot. So, but, but what we got in return was that remember our problems where we couldn't get a property because we didn't have cash and we couldn't get financing. We didn't have credit to, to get a bank loan. And so what we did, we got in return was we were able, the sellers did what's called carry back the, the seller financed the properties. So that means the sellers were in essence, the bank. Um, we didn't have to get, get a bank loan. The seller said, okay, you pay us X amount of dollars over X amount of years. And on top of that, we only had to put in a small down payment, less than 5%. So that solved our two problems, the lack of cash and the lack of financing. And on top of that, we were able to get the financing so that it was, we were able, you know, typical loans are 30 years. We were able to get this loan amortized over 50 years and which allowed the payments to be manageable so that the property could support itself so that the property cash flowed from day one, which is one of the knocks on California real estate is, you know, people always say, well, you can't get the cash flow. There's no cash flow because the rents and price are not really balanced out well enough. And they're right. But if you're able to get the financing that's if you're using traditional financing, but if you're able to modify the financing, then all of a sudden you you have a whole lot more possibilities with regards to doing these transactions. So that's what we did. We were able to get 50-year amortization. That's brought the payments down low enough where we're then able to, the property is able to afford itself. And so since, oh, gone. What do you think was the seller's motivation for taking this deal? The seller's motivation was they were, they'd owned the property for a long time. And they were tired of managing it. It was two. It was two hours away from them, and it was a, a Section Eight building, so it was it was a heavy management deal. And the tenants weren't paying, even though it's Section Eight, the government pays a portion, but then the tenants are supposed to pay the other portion, and the tenants weren't doing it. And so it was a heavy, you know, heavy labor intensive deal. And the, you know, there's a lot of riding the tenants, like trying to get them to perform, and the tenants weren't interested in performing. And then on top of that, so that was their motivation for selling. And they, one concern was that, you know, there's going to be a heavy tax hit. So that was the reason they didn't want to cash out because if they just cashed out on the deal, one, they wouldn't have gotten, we eventually, the final price was 750,000. They wouldn't have gotten 750. They'd have gotten closer to 500 for it. So that'd have been one thing. They would have to take that haircut there, which, you know, I'm sure nobody wanted to, nobody liked because no underwriter was going to underwrite it, was going to approve financing it at 750. And then two, there was going to be a major tax hit because they own the property. They purchased it, you know, years and years ago. So they were going to, not only were they only going to get 500, but then, uh, you know, about a third of that was going to go to the government. So they were only going to walk away with, you know, in the 300 to 350, 350 realm. So that was their motivation in large part to do seller financing, do an installment sale. And then, like I said, just to get out of the headache of management. Was it hard to get them to stretch that terms for to 50 years? Yeah. I mean, that wasn't the goal. That certainly was not the goal. I mean, the goal was originally, they told us what they wanted to do. They said they wanted, they wanted to start off, they wanted 20 years at 7%, I think it was. So they wanted 20 years at 7% and, you know, we just go down the numbers and the property wasn't going to support it. I think the gross rents for the property was 7,000. 
and the monthly payments on a 20 year mortgage at 7% was something like five or 6,000. So we're like, okay, it's, it's not going to, we can't do that. The property won't support that because typically if you look at a property, I think a typical good rule of thumb when you're first in analyzing a property is saying, Hey, like I take gross rents and I split that in half and then half. And that means half will go to taxes, insurance, repairs, upkeep, so on and so forth, utilities, and the other half will go towards mortgage. So our goal was, hey, we got to get this this payment to $3,500 or less, the mortgage payment. So they wanted to start through there, and, and we didn't, we're like, that's not going to work. So it, you know, it was one of those deals where we just kept going back and forth and back and forth. So that was what they said. That's what they wanted. We said, we can't do that. I mean, we didn't say we can't do that, but we were like, okay. And what happened was we left from the initial meeting and then we came back from that initial meeting. We talked to Clyde Wilson and Gary and Alice, uh, Gary Johnson and Alice San Jose, try to get like, their, their feelings on it and what we should do. And so then we put together three offers and, you know, each one was a different variable. We had like one that were higher price, one that was lower price, one was medium price, you know, one with a 30 year mortgage, one with a zero percent interest, one with seven percent interest. And we just, you know, toyed around with each one to see which one they wanted. How much was it cash flowing at the end of all that? Seven thousand was gross rents. You know, so I mean like it depends on the month that you're that's cash flowing. But I mean like and that thing was actually it wasn't um getting seven thousand gross rents because because it wasn't performing. But the scheduled rents were about just shy of seven thousand. But I mean after a net cash flow like so that was the net for the year? No, no, no. Gross per month was seven thousand. Okay. And then, I mean, like I said, I mean, we're we're going into we're we're trying to forecast it. So if you're if you're buying a property, you're you know you can see like their expenses from past or whatever, and you sort of get an idea. But on top of that, like I said, I feel like a good rule of thumb is typically the fifty percent rule. Do you always go into uh, an offer with that in mind, or do you actually break everything down? I typically will go in like with that in mind, you know, I feel like that's like a pretty safe number. I mean, it depends on the property. Like sometimes if I'm like, okay, like I know property tax in this area or whatnot for this price, if that's going to be higher or something like that, like I'll have to account for it, but at least 50%. I mean, yeah, I think that that's like a pretty safe, good, good, reasonable number. And this was, I mean, this is pretty much your first deal besides the the bad one. Uh, you had you, the bad yeah, one. Yeah. So yeah. before this, um, h- how many offers do you think it took to, to get you here? I would say a hundred, hundred offers. Yeah. Somewhere around there. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, it's years ago, but it was a lot. I mean, like, and we sent out a lot of mail. I mean, so there was, you know, so there was a lot of calls, uh, you, you know, so yes, yeah, so there was a lot of offers put out a lot of calls. Were you specifically, you said mail, so you, this, okay, I was thinking you were looking for these on MLS, so you were doing some direct mail and obviously spending quite a bit on that. Did you have a specific uh, list that you're targeting? No, I mean, we were looking for people that had owned for a while. Your initial strategy was always seller finance, so obviously it makes sense to have a list of people who own it free and clear. We don't know if they're free and clear, but we're just like, okay, like if, if they own a free and clear, that's great. I mean, we bought properties that aren't free and clear and we've still been able to make it work. So it just depends. I think it's the more important thing is the owner. And then I think ultimately that thing is with seller financing is I think people have a hard time with it, especially in the beginning because they don't see the benefit to the seller. I think that that's a huge, huge deal is I think that you have to understand, you have to sort of get in the nitty gritty of the seller. And what I mean is you have to, I, I joke that, that investors, I wrote about this on my blog. I said that investors are, we're, we're like Bob Ross. I don't know if you remember who Bob Ross, 
who's the painter, you know? And I used to love watching Bob Ross. He was on PBS when I was a kid. And, and he would always talk about, you know, he'd talk with this, start with this blank canvas. And then he would, you know, put in a fluffy little cloud here, a friendly little bush over here, a nice little bunny over here. And by the end, he had the entire canvas was painted, it was filled up. And I feel like that investors are the same. And what I mean is, is that when you go and meet a seller, you have to get the whole picture. Well, uh, let me back up. Investors' job, we're, our job is to fix people's problems. People are coming to us and we're able to get to get paid because we fix people's problems. The bigger the problem and the better we're able to fix it, the better we get paid. End of story. So how do you fix a problem? It would be like if I'm a plumber and you call up the plumber and you say, hey, come over to my house. And the plumber doesn't say, well, what's wrong? And the plumber just runs to the toilet and starts, starts dismantling the toilet. And you're like, no, 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 the toilet's fine. It's the kitchen sink, you know? And so it's the same thing with investors. I feel like investors, a lot of times, especially new investors will come in. They don't care to figure out the problem that they're trying to fix. So they just try to jam a solution down somebody's throat and the person doesn't want it. And they're like, well, uh, it doesn't work. It's like, no, 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 no. You didn't sit down to figure out what the problem was you're there to fix. And so that's getting to the Bob Ross thing is our goal as investors is to figure out the problem that we're there to fix. To paint the picture. So we, and in order to fix that problem, we got to ask questions. And I think everybody's like, well, what's the most important question? So what's the price? No, I think that what's the price is the least important question. That, I mean, that question comes, like, you got to get to it, but, like, that's down the road. I think the most important question you got to ask is, hey, uh, Pete Fortunato always talks about this. Anybody who's listening, Pete Fortunato is amazing. You should definitely go and um, go and, and see him speak. He'll always say, hey, why would you want to sell such a nice house? Because you want to get to the bottom of why they want to sell. What's the pain? Why Nobody wants to sell because it's, they're just bored. There's some sort of pain that they think they're alleviating or they think they're putting themselves in a better position by selling. So you have to get to the bottom of, hey, what is the reason that you're selling? Why do you want to do this? And then on top of that, what are you going to do with the money? What's your goal with the cash? So so those are the things you got to really get to the bottom of. And when you get to the bottom of those questions, then you can, you can be more effective at, at doing seller financing or creative financing because you're, you're figuring out, hey, like this is the person's button. This is their pain, why they want to get rid of it. Like, for example, when I talked about our, our first deal, the people wanted to get rid of it because they were tired of management. They were just sick of management. The tenants weren't paying. It's far away. You know, it was a tough gig. They're just like, listen, we're, we're burnt out. We've been doing management for 30 years. We're just tired of it. So, so that was their, that was their goal to get rid of it. Then on top of that, what do they want to do with the cash? You know, like they're trying to figure out, hey, like we want to make sure that, that our family's taken care of, that our family has a nest egg, that the money's just not blown, that, the, that we don't burn it, you know, and, and just waste it, that it doesn't all go and to get paid off in taxes. We want to figure out some sort of manner of protecting the wealth that we've accumulated and having that earn interest on top of that. So that's really, you know, when you get to the bottom of, like I said, that was their pain and that was their goal. They didn't want to go out and buy 20 Maseratis or anything like that. They're like, hey, like we want to reinvest this money. We want to save it as much as possible. We don't want to have it spent losing capital gains tax. And we wanted to earn cash on top of that to be able to, to leave a legacy for, for our kids and grandkids. 
so that's what I think is is really important to sort of get down to. Like I said, when you're asking questions, hey, what what are you doing with the money? Why do you want to sell? You know, what's a tax hit going to be? How long have you owned the property? Have you sat down and talked to your accountant? Do you, how many kids do you have? How many grandkids do you have? Are they in college? You know, are they interested in investing? Why don't you just sell it to them? And ask as many questions as you can, and then come up with solutions that don't involve you. I and mean, Bruce Norris talked about this, I remember, and I thought this is a great a great technique where. I'll come up with solutions when I'm meeting sellers that don't involve me. Just things that other people that that I don't profit from, but I'm like, hey, like this I think solves your problem. And if it solves a problem, that's great. And then we'll just move on and you know still be friends and that'll be it. But a lot of times they'll be like, I'll be like, well, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just do that? That doesn't involve me. And a lot of times they'll say, No, 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 I can't do that because of this. And I can't do that because of that. And then all of a sudden they just keep they're closing doors that are there that, that don't involve me. And then all of a sudden we're the, the last door left. Yeah. People, I think people are scared to ask those. They think they're going to, they're going to all of a sudden shut down the deal by giving them a solution, but. And that might happen, which is fine. If, if that happens, then that's the way it should be. And you get it over with right then and there. Cause they're, they're gonna... with right then and there. Yeah. That's right. And so you get it done with, and, and not only that, the person who knows, the person might be happy to be like, Hey, look, yeah, Paul came up with a solution that didn't involve him. You know what? I'm going to start recommending him or I'm going to do whatever. And all of a sudden you've won an ally in the deal. So yeah, so I think it's really important. If if you can't benefit the person, if you can't fix the problem or there's a problem that can be fixed without you in a better way, then it should be done. You shouldn't just be making deals that aren't where you're not the best solution. This took you, you said about a hundred offers. And actually I think that's pretty good because I remember Peter Fortunato saying, it took him like two years, two two hundred offers to get his first deal, and which is kind of funny because Peter's a legend in in, in yes. real estate investing. So, listening and digging into a seller's life is a skill set. Did this take you a while to learn? Listen, I love talking to people. Like, I mean, I will talk to people. My wife always always jokes with me that I mean, when when I talk to people, they feel like they're being cross examined by me because I want to like. These are just people that I just meet like on the stream, like, oh, where are you from? What do you do? You know, you know, what's your favorite football team? Like, I'll ask a thousand questions. And I I don't know if it's because I'm an attorney or what, but I love like learning about people. And I'm always naturally curious about other people. So, yeah, so I've always been I think even when I was a kid, like I always asked a lot of questions to people to sort of learn about him because I was just always naturally curious. So it's sort of that, I just sort of take that natural curiosity to deal with people. You know, if I'm, if I'm buying from it now, I ask up a thousand questions and, and most of them have nothing to do with real estate, nothing. But the funny thing is, even though they don't have anything to do with the real estate, they kind of circle back towards it somehow because, you know, it tells me a little insight into like their motivation or to their goals or what they want or so on and so forth or, or the pains that they're feeling without even that being the goal of the question, you know? So I think that I just ask a lot of questions naturally. And I, I think it's, um, like I said, if, if I just meet someone on the street, I just start asking questions because I just want to learn about them. So, yeah. How many do you think you've acquired since, since that first deal in 2009, you said? We've acquired a decent number. I mean, it's been, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty sizable, you know, a number of properties who are pretty, um, it's been, it's been a good amount we've gotten. All of them have been some, uh, some sort of uh, creative structure? We bought in some that, that were just like low, where we're like, okay, this is a good price. But yeah, we've done a number a number since then where it's been like, yeah, it's been just like creative somehow getting some sort of leverage, whether it be seller financing or lease options or something like that. 
to be able to get, I mean, like our ultimate goal with these deals is, is to figure out a way to either get equity or get leverage or get cash flow. So, yeah, so that's pretty much our focus. And like I said, but I think our main focus when we go into these things is one building relationships and then two getting, like figuring out what the problem is, figuring out if we're actually, if we can fix the problem or if they're just better listening with the MLS. Do you usually refer them to an agent? If, if that's the case, I mean, like if they ask me, I'll, you know, if they'll say we don't have an agent, I'd, I'd more than happy to give them, give them somebody. But, but typically I don't, I don't volunteer that unless I'm asked. Are you licensed yourself? I'm not licensed. No, okay. I'm not an agent. Okay. So yeah, I can always stay out of that. Yeah. <laughs> all of these that you've bought, they're all locally in California. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's California. And you, uh, you keep pretty much all of them. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And managing them, are, you're managing them all yourself as well. Managing myself. Correct. So, and that's, I mean, like that, that it's funny. I mean, like that's another class we took was David Tilney's class and Mike Cantu's um, property manager class. Those are both two very good classes that taught us a lot and really got, because when we first started, I was a bit of a hot mess with management. You know, now we're able to manage, manage our portfolio much better than we could when we just had like one little property, you know? What have you changed then since then? What are, what are some tips for managing? A couple of things. I mean, one, you got to have the paperwork, like the paperwork's got to be lined up. Make sure you got your paperwork down, whatever whatever you're going to use. And then two, uh, I would say, I wrote about this in my blog. I was like, listen, I think that the number one thing, 90% of property management is finding a good tenant. That's the lion's share of the issue. If you find a good tenant, that's 90% of your problems are taken care of right there. Because you're going to have someone who's going to take care of the property, who's going to be you know, courteous to neighbors, courteous to you, and pay on time. Everything else is, you know, there's going to be stuff that's going to come up outside of that, but that's like the lion's share of it. So I think for me, what we always do is, is I think the number one thing that I hear about with people that are new to, to management is, like I said, one, make sure you get your paperwork in order and have like a set of rules that you follow. And this is the one that I think most people really get screwed up on is when you're marketing to, to properties, always market, I always make sure that my place is clean. I never market a place that's, you know, kind of like mismatched paint or, or, you know, kind of schmegly looking. Like I always make sure it doesn't have to be great looking. And what I mean is like, I don't like put in brand new countertops and, you know, brand new stove and all this stuff. No, no, no. I mean like the stuff that I have in my place are pretty basic, but it's clean. Everything's uniform. Like I'll either have laminate flooring or all tile floor, you know, new, little things like new toilet seats, new, uh, covers over the power uh, electrical outlets things like that so it just looks fresh and i'll have like a, a cleaner a cleaning crew come in and make sure it's always clean two i advertise it like crazy so i make sure i get it out to as many eyeballs as i can and three and this is i think is the most important i think where a lot of new landlords get get messed up is i think pricing like i always price my apartments just a little bit below market i want to attract the best possible tenant i can attract and if you think about it, if you're someone who's like, hey, like I'm a good tenant, or if you're just going, you know, you, Paul, or whoever's listening, you know, if you're just like, hey, I want to go get the best deal I can get, you're not just going to go to some, you know, some place that looks like a dump that's overpriced. You're going to be like, hey, I'm looking to get the nicest place I can get for the, the most affordable rent I can get. And so that's what I do. I just make sure that it's always just a little bit below market so that that way people are like, yeah, this is a deal. 
this is the deal. And, and, and you know, not only that, I'm, I'm a good candidate. I'm not just like someone who doesn't pay their rent or has terrible credit or so on and so forth. They're like, Hey, like I'm someone who's a good candidate. I got good, ten- good, good rent and this good, good credit. And this is a place that I want. So I, like I said, I find that that solves like 90% of your problems right there. When you're looking for a deal, do you keep that in mind as, as far as, Hey, I, I'm looking in this area where I know this is a good market for tenants. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, like, I'm fortunate that I live in LA, so it's a huge renter's market. So I know that I can get, you know, that there's going to be a good pool of tenants. And I know, you know, what I'm looking for, even in tougher neighborhoods. I go in, I mean, a lot of our stuff is in, is in, is in tougher neighborhoods and still, we still get, you know, people with 700 credit scores. What would be a definition of a tougher neighborhood? So I guess a lot of people use the the class A, B, or C, D. I don't know. I mean, like, I think everybody's got different definitions. But I mean, like, you know, when you see, like, when you see, I guess, on the MLS or things like that, they'll see, like, a C neighborhood. I think that, that would be, you know, I guess. I always get mixed up on, on how, to, how to classify it. But even in neighborhoods, it's not like Beverly Hills. Even in those neighborhoods, like, I'm, we're still getting people with 700 credit. Coming and so and I think it's because, like I said, we're we're putting out a product that's it's clean, it's nice, it's well kept, and it's a good price. And if you do that, you're going to get taken care of. I think you'll you'll be able to get a good pool of tenants to do that. And like I said, I see a lot of new landlords. They'll they'll be like they just sort of like patch up things, and it looks like a schmegly looking property, and then and then they'll um they'll price it like above market, like somehow like. And you're going to find someone that's going to take it, but it's typically going to be the person who's like, hey, I got no other options. You know, I just got kicked out of my last place. You know, I got a 500 or 400 credit score, whatever it is. And just, I need a place to live here. Here is, I'm paying you all cash right now. Like, take it. And that person that, you know, you're getting a warm body in there, but there's going to be trouble most likely. To get more free exclusive interviews, transcripts, resources mentioned in this interview, head on over to realestateaudios.com. I would imagine that a lot of these landlords, they price it higher or they do uh, kind of shit show patch jobs because they bought it for too high of a price and maybe they're, they're, they're financing it for too much. And then they're realizing that maintenance capital expenditures cost a lot more than what they expected. Yeah, I think that's an issue. I think for sure people buy it and then they, they say, well, I have to rent it for this amount because that's what the mortgage is. And it's like, no, 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 that's not, it's like the chicken and the egg, you know, or the dog wagging the tail or whatever you want to call it. Like, like the market sets the, the rental price. You can't determine what you're going to rent it for. The market's going to tell you, you know, if you're in a market that, hey, like all two bedrooms rent for around 1500 you can't just go and say, well, you know, my mortgage is 3000 bucks. I'm going to rent the place for, for 4000 bucks or 3000 or 5000 or whatever it is. You're not going to get anybody in there. So you have to be conscious of that market before you buy. You got to know, hey, like these are what this property can rent for. I can rent for this property for this amount easy. And you got to know before you go in there, before you make that buy, because you're right, like people will do that. They'll try to dictate the price of the rental based on what their mortgage payment is. And, and that just, that's not the way it works. The market will tell you what you can rent it for. And what are some characteristics then you found through the years that makes a good tenant that you're looking for? Number one, like, hey, you know, credit score is obviously important and past landlords, how were they? You know, like, were they long timers? Why are they moving their last, from the, leaving their last place? What's their landlords, you know, landlords say about them? What's the prior landlord say about them? 
what's their employer say about them? What have, you know, what's, how's their resume, how's their application look? Is it clean? Is it everything filled out? Or is it just like kind of like scribbled through with coffee stains, you know? So I think there's a lot of things. I mean, we look at everything. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, that, no, that's great advice, man. And the prices I'm thinking right now, cause I want to get into the market today in California cause it's, it's 2020 prices have gone up. Um, are you still buying today? Yeah. I mean, like, listen, we're buying, I don't think I'm buying retail, but for us, we're always, I'm always getting leads. And a lot of times our leads don't pop for a couple of years. We just get leads and I just stay on them. So I'm just with them. I'm just waiting. And then eventually someone will call me up and be, I mean, the longest we've ever waited was seven years with someone. And someone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah we want to sell now. And we got a smoking deal with it. An amazing deal. But, you know, so so we have a lot of people like that, or people that we've done business with before, that we bought property from before. We just keep in touch with them, and we're just waiting. So if we can negotiate a deal, I don't care about the market so much. I care more about the deal and the seller. And if we can if we can make it work, you know, even in a market right now where there's a lot of uncertainty, I mean, we just have, I mean, the stock market just crashed this week, you know, so there's, nobody really knows where the market's going. With that being said, if one of my leads is like, hey, like, I'm selling – I'd absolutely go and meet with them and, and, and try to make a deal for the most part. And so, yeah, that's, so that's the deal is, is just staying, you know, if, if you get someone that you're like, Hey, this is a decent lead. I'm just staying on them and I'm not leaving their side. And yeah, they might not ever sell, but if they sell, I want to be first in line. I love that analogy too, because we can't control the results. All we can control is, is what we do. Right. I mean, that, we control our behavior and, and sending mail and that's it. And calling these people back. That's all we can control. Correct. Now, 2020 now with the whole coronavirus thing and um, looks like another recession coming about. I, I, I assume that's what everybody's talking about. It seems so. What are your thoughts on that? What are you, what are you changing, if anything? What are you looking forward to? I don't know. I honestly don't know. You know, like I might be more aggressive in, in just buying retail. Like, I don't know. I mean, like I'm sort of waiting to see because we're just in the... The beginning of it, I mean, it was it was funny. I mean, because everybody's like, "Hey, we nobody could really see if this does turn into a recession here." Everybody was saying it's going to be some sort of black swan that's happening, and this might be the black swan that did it. And so, I really don't know. You know, I'm curious to see how the next few months fold out, but I'm definitely interested. You know, and I think that anybody who's an investor, I, I think for us, like now, all of a sudden, I'm much more, much more interested in 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 buying. What do you think will change as far as strategy? Just becoming more aggressive with leads? I also don't know. I mean, maybe I, I don't know. I mean, I think with our leads, like I, I sort of keep the same approach. I think that, like I said, I mean, I, I'm, I just let them know that I'm here and they know where I am and they know how to get in touch with me. But a, a creative finance structure is always going to be the backbone behind this. I'm just fixing a problem, remember? So, so I, I just have to have as many tools in my toolbox as I can, like, you know, the problem is with most investors, people are brand new. They're like, I can just do, you know, cash to new loan. Like I can just do, uh, get a bank loan on the property and that's it. I'm like, okay, that's one tool, but you want to have as many tools as you can get. Like, I mean, like certain people that are fixing flippers, they're like, Hey, like I can get cash and I can get cash tomorrow. They're fast. That's their superpower, if you will. And people that are creative, then there's the so that's another tool. And then there's, if you're doing seller financing, hey, that's one tool. Maybe a lease option is a tool. Maybe a master lease is a tool. You know, so it's like having as many tools as in your, in your toolbox as you can to fix the appropriate problem. 
So I think that that's really what's important is having as many tools as you can as you can have in your in your toolbox, so that when the opportunity comes up, you're like, okay, I mean, we'll meet with sellers, and this would be like it'll be like, how about this option? No, bam. Okay, well, how about this option? Bam. No. How about this option? No. Bam. And then yeah, how about this option? That's interesting. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay. And then you start talking about that option. Then, then you start going down sub parts of that. Well, what about this? What if we did this? No, 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 no. Yeah, that, that might work. And then you just keep going and going and going, but you got to have the different tools and know how they operate and know which problem that they fix or which problem they solve before you can pull them out. You know what I mean? Like I said, if, if you're the plumber that's going to the house and you start ripping apart the toilet and the person, no, no, it's the kitchen sink. That's sort of like the person who's like, Hey, like I'm just going to cram a, 60% of value offer down your throat, all cash. And the person's like, that's not helping me. Like I'm, you know, I got a major tax hit or I want to reinvest the cash or, you know, whatever it is that doesn't fix my problem. So, so that's what I think is important is, is just sort of getting to the bottom of, Hey, like what's the problem? Is going to be any issues being a landlord during this recession with tenants? You think that's going to yeah, because people talk about how apartments are recession proof, but the actual guys that are doing it are are saying that it's not recession proof because tenants still have issues during recession. For sure, I mean, like nothing's ever like one hundred percent recession proof. For example, people that are in Airbnb, it's going to be rough. I mean, like we we just started on this thing, and Airbnb is going to have a rough time. I think going forward, I would not buy a property based on Airbnb numbers. And that's what a lot of people were doing. We're saying, oh, I'm going to base it, you know, a house that can rent as a long-term rental for say a thousand bucks or 1500 or $2,000. But they're as an Airbnb, they can rent it out for 5,000 a month. That's not really a relevant number anymore, I don't think. So things like that are definitely going to be, going to be hit big time, I think, in this, this situation, because there's not going to be people traveling, things like that. I mean, for sure. Like, I mean, you're going to have tenants. I mean, in the, the great recession, in 08, rents dropped. I'm sure that landlords might might have to consider. So I don't know. I, we don't know how to play out right now. If rents would drop, is that a worry for you? Being that a lot of these you still leverage with the seller, with the original seller. I mean, like because even if they drop a lot of times, like I mean, it just depends, right? Like in a way, how much did they drop, right? It was a couple hundred bucks a month. So like the prices dropped, it fell out of the sky. I mean, the prices you know went from. 500,000 to 300,000, you know, in six months, you're like, whoa, that's real cash. But if you got to drop the, the rent from 1,500 to 1,400, I always keep my rents low to begin with because I, I want my tenants to be happy and, and to, to want to live there for a long time. I mean, that's really the goal. I don't, I don't want to have turnover. So I make sure I give them a nice place with good rents and I make sure that, they, you know, if they go and start hunting around for, for another place, they're not going to find another place as nice as that for that price of rent. You know, if I had to drop them, I don't anticipate that I had to do it. But if I did, you know, even if uh, the market, you know, worst case scenario, it dropped a lot where, you know, now it didn't make any sense for you. I'm assuming you can always go back. You're not dealing with banks here with a lot of these deals. You can go always back and renegotiate something, right? That's exactly right. If things are really push comes to shove, I can go back and talk to the owners, be like, listen, we got a problem here. Let's work something out. So that's, that's, I mean, that's some of the great flexibility that comes with, with these deals is, is the ability to do that. If you're, if you're dealing with, you know, a bank, they don't care. They're not going to come and work things out for you. You know, they're just like, just give me my money. And with an individual seller, they'd be like, Hey, you know, you sort of listen, you know, you've known me for many years. We always pay you on time. 
here's a situation we're coming up against. Let's try to work something out. It's it's a problem for you. It's a problem for me. Um, let's try to work something out. I mean, like I said, I'll do everything to not get to that point. But if we have to get to that point, I mean, there is that flexibility, which is always, uh, you know, it's a good safety net. Hey, buddy, it's uh, it's getting late here. We've been talking for a while, and you've been giving some great info. What do you think? Uh, how can people reach you? They can go to my website um, at buddybroom.com, B-U-D-D-Y-B-R-O-O-M-E.com. They can email me through the website, and also they can uh, sign up for my um, newsletter. And if they sign up for my newsletter, they get a free uh, introduction. Like a t- I did a uh, like about a 25-page PDF on um, evaluating rental properties and um, and also seller finance. So it sort of gives them a black and white, like, okay, this is what seller finance looks like. I, I go through numbers and things like that and, and what I look at when I look at rental properties. And are you still teaching your financial calculator class? I am. I am. I, I agree with my, my family. I wouldn't teach until uh, I'll pro- likely be teaching this uh, this fall. So I'm speaking at a couple clubs. I'm speaking at Phoebe, Orange County in September, and then I'm speaking at North San Diego, Rhea, and September, Jay Sherman's club. And I'll be teaching likely sometime in September or October, I believe. So yeah, and it'll probably be in Long Beach areas where I'll be teaching. And I'll keep, like I said, if you sign up for my newsletter, I'll keep you posted on on when that'll be coming out and things like that. Are is any last uh, any last thoughts you want to say or anything we we missed? No, I think um, this is a great a great uh, interview. And I think that if you're just starting off, just go to clubs, read as much as you can, and take as many classes as you can just to get. To, to learn this stuff. If you go to my website on my blog, I have some of my favorite investing teachers in there and I have some of my favorite investing books. So I would strongly encourage you to just get as much um, as much content as you can and, and talk to people that are doing it and figure out what you want to do, you know, what your end goal is and then go from there. But I think that there's so much good free content out there. Um, just keep going and learning and, and talking to people that do it and um, going to clubs you know, a lot of good resources that are inexpensive are free and inviting people out to lunch to do this stuff. You know, I think a lot of our investor friends are happy to, to tell them what they know over a free, uh, you know, a free meal and just, just keep at it. And just because it, it takes a lot of time, it's a work and a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of, um, a lot of knowledge you got to acquire and a lot of, you know, a lot of rejection, but when it, when it happens, it's worth it. It's really great. And, um, yeah, so you know, just keep going, keep learning, keep keep going at it. All right, that's a wrap. But before you go, let me add here that whether you're in the buy and hold strategy, wholesaling, flipping, mobile homes, land, or whatever it is, after I ventured in a lot of these niches here, while working a W-2 job and building some cash flow streams, I've learned that focus and gaining some actual traction for a long-lasting business is the biggest problem for busy investors. So that's why I have for you daily email tips that can boost not just your lead generation, but your focus in your venture. So head on over to realestateaudios.com for those free gifts, a free newsletter, and the mentioned resources in these interviews. Thanks for listening and keep moving forward every day.